Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, where today we're going to be discussing something that we haven't yet discussed. On the podcast in the past, we've spoken a lot about voice app development, skill development, action development, and how you can create kind of standalone third party apps within the voice environment on Alexa, Google Home, etc. etc. We have covered some VUI stuff outside of that, but what we haven't done is we haven't covered the other side of these virtual assistants, digital assistants and smart speakers, which is the search function. So whenever you ask Alexa a question or you ask Google Home or Google Assistant a question and it gives you an answer directly, how does it do that? And how as a brand or as a content creator or as a, uh, a developer or whatever your kind of interest is in this space, how can you utilize that native search to then either provide value to users or to establish a presence on voice? So we're going to be talking today all about voice search, the current situation, the current state of play, as well as the future for voice search as well. And to guide us through it, we have, I think probably if I could pick a person to take us through this uh, from a Google perspective, I couldn't have found a better person to take us through it. We are going to be speaking today to Dr. Pete Myers, who is a marketing scientist from Moz.com. If you don't know about Moz.com, I'm sure we'll find out a lot more about Moz uh, during the course of this podcast, but Moz essentially is the industry leader for SEO tooling and knowledge. And Dr. Pete has been uh, a part of the Moz team for a long time he's done a lot of uh, writing and studies if you've if you kind of read on, on digital content marketing and SEO you'll have come across his work uh, and now he's working with Moz on the product side I don't think there's a person on the planet who knows Google better than Dr. Pete so we're going to get right up and close and into detail about Google Home Google Assistant Google search and the whole voice search landscape and we're going to do that right now So, hello there, Dr. Pete. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. Fantastic for you to join us. Really, really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to us today. Um, so, what we, as I mentioned in the intro there, we've covered a lot of stuff around app development on this podcast. We haven't covered things around search, voice search in particular, and your experience is vast in this space. Do you want to tell people a little bit about your background and your experience and what you've been up to and, and, and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll try and keep the shorter version of how I got where I am. Uh, I'm I'm closer to 50 than 40, so it's been a long journey. Uh, I'm the marketing scientist for Moz, and uh, long story short, when I when I joined Moz full time, I've been part of the site from a content perspective for about 10 years, but I've been full time with them for about five. Uh, I, I was trying to decide whether to be part of the marketing team or the data science team at the time. And I decided to split my time, uh, which turned out great. And so I, I essentially study where Google is headed, you know, the trends in Google. And I use that from both the marketing perspective for Moz and more now the last couple of years from a product perspective to try and help understand where our product needs to be in the next, uh, you know, two to three years, sometimes honestly in the next year, the way things are moving 
Uh, and we're a, we're a marketing analytics package for search marketers. So, you know, a lot of this is about what is coming. You know, things do seem to be moving fast. So what's happening? What do our customers need to wear, be aware of? What do they need to adapt to? And, you know, voice right now is a big part of that. We're seeing these appliances launch. We're seeing more and more voice search on our phones. And, you know, what, what do companies need to be doing? So that's what we're trying to figure out. Fantastic. And for those people um, who may not be aware of Moz, you mentioned in terms of some of the tooling that it provides, it also provides a hell of a lot of content as well and guidance and education in the area uh, that you've just kind of covered in, in analytics and search and things like that. Um, if somebody hadn't heard about Moz, what would, how would you describe Moz? How would you describe the company and what it does? Yeah, it's funny. We, we came out of that uh, you know, essentially, when we launched, we were a consulting firm in the search marketing space, organic search marketing as opposed to paid uh, SEO, <laughs> as some mm -hmm. of us say. And yeah, we were really, we really started out with heavy educational content. And uh, Rand Fishkin, our founder, you know, his blog and built up from there. And that's really what drew me into the company. Uh, and that's still a big focus for us is on educating the industry and doing the research and kind of seeing where things are headed. And then we help customers, you know, track campaigns, track rankings, track links, things like that, and manage their manage their organic search campaigns better. Uh, but you know, like anyone, we're trying to get into that layer of not just providing you these numbers, but trying to help provide you with these insights about, look, what what do I do now? You know, what what kind of things should I be producing, and how do I get prepared for these next steps? And I, I think it's scary for a lot of people because. We know the mobile revolution, you know, we've talked about it for a decade, but it's, it's here, you know, it's here and gone. Uh, we, we are mobile and voice is coming and these things are happening and people don't just want to know where they rank on Google and how much traffic they got. They want to know what they have to do next. And so, you know, we're trying to both from a content perspective and a product perspective, try and sort out how we solve that. Hmm. And in terms of kind of where it goes next, you've mentioned the kind of the rising trend of, of voice searches and stuff like that. I come across a, an article in Forbes, um, and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. It was by a guy called Jason Demers, and one of the quotes in there is that he says that we're on the verge of a full-scale search revolution in the next few years because of the rise of these voice-first devices and voice-first digital assistants. What do you make of that? Dr. Pete, and would you agree with that or not? It's tough. I yes and no is the is the short answer. Um, I, I think voice is serious. I think voice is real, and it is going to change things a lot. But what I think we the danger of that statement to me, and no no uh, no offense to Jason, but I hear it a lot, and this is something I worry about. I think in our heads we have this feeling that. We're moving from desktop to mobile to voice. And the way we think about that, if you kind of look at the graph in our minds, what that means is that in so many years, however many years, we're going to be 100% voice. And I think that's completely false. Hmm. I think what we're moving to is a multi-device, multimodal world where we have journeys across multiple devices. You know, when we move from our phones to our laptop to voice where it's appropriate and where these devices are going to start to find their niche. And voice is going to be a big part of that. You know, if you're in the kitchen working 
if you're in the car driving, whatever, even if the car is driving itself, you know, you may not have that screen with you. There are going to be places where voice makes a lot of sense and we're going to have to compete with on voice. And there are going to be other places where we still need that screen. And sometimes it's going to be a big screen. Sometimes it's going to be a small screen. And we're not going to ever end up with everything on one modality. You know, nothing is going to be 100% served by images or by voice. And so the interesting thing to me, and I think the very challenging things and where the revolution will come is that we have to get away from this thought process of we have, you know, desktop customers and mobile customers and voice customers and realize that everyone is involved in a journey that's going to take them across all of these devices. And we have to understand where are they starting and where are they ending? And are we giving them a rich experience cross device? And I think voice and the voice user experience are going to be a huge part of that because if, you know, if I have this great desk, even now, if I have this great desktop website, but a lousy mobile website and a lousy voice experience and people aren't engaging in this cross device journey, that one good experience won't be enough. Yeah, and so I think that's where the revolution is going to come and where our shift in thinking is going to come. What I don't think is going to happen is that we're going to move down this pathway that ends in everything is voice and, you know, nothing has a screen. I, I think even if we say that out loud, we kind of go, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I seen. Uh, funnily enough, it was it was one of the most videos. I think it was one of the whiteboard Fridays that uh, Rand Fishkin used to do, um, and it was saying it was kind of focusing on voice search, and it was actually saying that search in general, just typical search, screen based typed search, is actually still growing pretty heavily every single year and that voice search although it will be growing alongside it won't necessarily replace it uh, possibly even ever but certainly not for quite some time yeah one thing interesting we saw with mobile searches is i think a year or so ago mobile searches hit half half of all google searches were mobile according to google so i don't know what the exact number is now but what we saw was the until about a year or two ago, the, the amount of desktop searches didn't go down. So what happened was we added mobile searches and they became a big part of the mix and, and very important. We can't ignore them at all, but they didn't replace desktop searches. They just added, <laughs> they yeah. just were more. Um, and at some point that stops, you know, at some point one is going to start to cannibalize the other one and they're going to level out. But one didn't really replace the other. It just became yet another thing we did and to have that thing in our pocket all the time. And, you know, I see it with voice and I'm, I'm a late adopter sometimes, but you know, it, it, now that I do certain things with voice, they just make sense to me. You know, things I do in the car, like send a text or ask my phone how long it's going to take till I get home. You know, this has become much more second nature, but it's also, I just didn't do that before. You know what I mean? Like that's an added thing that I do now that I have voice that I wouldn't have done because I didn't have my hands and I, I just didn't do anything before. So now it's, you know, I'm getting used to making this an additional search task that I do. And essentially I'm, I'm adding more searches to my life because they work and they're mm. providing value. That's interesting. So it's kind of almost created a new requirement for search on top of our existing kind of search behavior. 
That's quite interesting. So that's probably um, kind of speaks to your point, doesn't it, in terms of the multimodality side of things and perhaps that people won't necessarily be replacing a, a typical search with a voice search. It may be that the voice search is actually being used in a time where they can't type, as you mentioned, in the car or something like that. Yeah, you know, I'll give you an example in the car because I, I discovered this the other day. So uh, I have the usual, like, windscreen-mounted uh, GPS, you know, Garmin, I think I have a Garmin. Uh, and slowly I've started to use my phone. I have a Google, I have a Pixel phone. I've started to use that instead because it's better. <laughs> you know, it, just, <laughs> it just works better and it's more useful. Uh, so I've got that screen. I've got one screen on the windscreen and one screen in my lap, which is probably not the safest way to drive. I need to you know, do something about that. But I discovered the other day that I could ask the phone, um, even if I wasn't navigating, how long until I get home? And so, you know, I've got that map going and the screen is doing something, but that interaction of, hey, how much longer till I get home is a new interaction. You know what I mean? So that, that isn't replacing that map that I'm looking at. It's just something new that I figured out I can do. Or the phone is navigating and a song comes on the radio and I say, tell me what that song is. That's a new interaction that I didn't have before. And so it didn't replace anything. And, you know, some things are going to be replaced, but I think it's interesting that what's actually happening is that we're discovering new functionality for search and new skills that search didn't have before. Uh, and there's still a lot of potential there. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of search volume undiscovered in a sense, because we're realizing search can do new, th new and interesting things. So. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also the, as you mentioned that you know if you're starting to use voice searches more and more i'm certainly starting to use it more and more uh and, and us two are people who are you know i would class and certainly on your part heavily involved in this industry and i'm kind of trying to do my piece in along the way so if that's kind of two people who you probably think of as kind of certainly early in this kind of space then only you know you can only imagine what will happen when you know people's parents are starting to use voice like if my if my mum whipped out her phone now and, and asked Siri how to get home or something like that I'd be absolutely astonished but I didn't think she'd ever use Facebook <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't think she'd ever use Facebook but she's on it like a, in like I don't know what so I think eventually yeah, you end see, up yeah we say that and then a year we say that in a year from now we'll be home for Christmas and that's gonna happen yeah, um, yeah. I think it's interesting too I have two young kids they're seven and five uh, and we have Alexa and uh, Google Home in the house and they're the, the way it's the way I've come to think of it is, you know, I, I grew up, I was born in 1970. I grew up in the eighties, early, you know, early personal computers, uh, 80, 88 processors, things like that. Uh, I, we, people my age had to learn dumb search, what I call it. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't use natural language. We had to learn, to type these two and three word queries that were kind of stupid sounding because search wasn't very smart. And now we're having to relearn natural language in a sense. You know, we're having to relearn that searches, search engines are capable of understanding what we're talking about. My kids are voice native in a sense. You know, they, they expect voice to work. And so they don't type in things like plan wedding London. 
you know, the, the kind of weird things that we would say because we grew up with this dumb search. They just ask, you know, and so it's very interesting to me that even though we're search people and so we're early adopters in the sense of having to understand these capabilities, I think there is a generation right now that just walks up to machines and asks them questions and expects them to know the answer. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, as that generation becomes larger, you know, in, in ages, and as the machines get smarter, that, you know, that's when that revolution will come. And it's interesting because they do, you know, there again, there are another market where search is just being added. You know, if my daughter's working on her homework and he, she doesn't know how to spell a word, she just asks Alexa, you know, if she wants to know how big a planet is or how many days to her birthday, they just ask Alexa, you know, and they use it a little more than Google Home just because of the way we're set up at home but uh, these mm. weren't things these were things they asked me <laughs> <You know? laughs> as if i as if i could just calculate in my head you know exactly how many days birthday eight and a half months from now uh, or knew how big the sun was off the top of my head um and i don't want to disillusion anyone that i don't know all that instantly but yeah it's it's funny that now they, you know, they weren't using search engines. They don't think they don't know how to use a keyboard. My seven-year-old sort of does now, mm. uh, but they didn't use Google. Mm. But they'll walk up to these machines and they'll ask questions. And so, you know, that's the search ecosystem they're going to grow up in. Mm. And that then presumably presents a heck of a lot of challenges for the companies behind these search engines. So let's use the Google example. I know that you're kind of more than all fair with Google and, and how it all kind of works and hangs together and stuff like that. In your kind of kind of vision that you just kind of explained there where, you know, you're, you're voice searching in the car, you might kind of type on a desktop and, and you might kind of do a mobile search, uh, you know, while you're walking around or what have you. In this kind of multimodal environment, how does a company like Google cope with processing all of these different search queries across all of these different modalities? Right. It's, it's extremely challenging. I think, and Alexa, what Amazon has done and what Google has done are, are very different. Uh, and I know more about what Google's done, obviously. Uh, I think what Google has done is tried to use its core capabilities and its core engine to serve everything and to make things less device dependent. Um, and we don't always see it, but the way Google views the user experience in a sense, to really oversimplify it, if you go to do a search and you see that thing we sometimes call, any, you see any result, whether it's an ad or an organic result, but now we see those little answer boxes, we call them, at the top. In Google's vernacular, those are all cards. And different devices hold a different number of cards. And so on desktop, we have that, that 10 card mentality, right? We have 10 results. That's not true always anymore, but that's the way we think. And we might have that thing in the right-hand panel. On mobile, we lose that right-hand panel or it moves to the bottom. And tablet is more like mobile. But we might have less cards or we might have more and have to scroll. So my on cards, voice, just, just, to, on, sorry, just to confirm for, for those who may not be aware, cards, as you're explaining it there, are you talking about search results? Or are you talking about that kind of like featured snippet at the top that will have the answer to the question within it? 
So basically, although we don't think of it this way visually because that's not how the design is, in Google's mind, and if you look at the source code, everything is a card. Okay. So all, all a card is is a single search information unit. Mm-hmm. And that search information unit might be an ad or it might be an organic result or it might be that answer box. Okay. And I think the world we're moving towards is a very flexible framework where Google can mix and match that information however the voice however the device allows. And that might not just mean voice, but you know, your your Google Watch, where you've only got room for one card. And voice, you've basically got room for one card. And mobile, you've got a little more space, and desktop, you've got a lot of space. And so I think Google is trying to figure out both from a back-end perspective and from a UX perspective, how do we take our core competence in search, this, this huge index of the web, all your websites, all the information we've got from them, our knowledge graph, you know, this kind of fixed database of facts, and all advertising, of course, and send that to any place that makes sense. And so they're trying to develop a much more flexible engine using that core power they already have. And then on the flip side, and we saw this in desktop search, uh, the Hummingbird update, the algorithm update, we call the Hummingbird update, Google made a big shift towards natural language. And that was driven, that capability was driven by voice and was driven by mobile, but it also changed how search works on desktop. So that's what we're seeing. Google is becoming more mobile first. They're becoming voice first when that makes sense. But that's actually changing all of their products all the way back to desktop. So they're okay. they're trying to apply this knowledge and apply these capabilities across everything. But they're being forced to move more and more towards a device-independent framework and towards natural language because that's where we're headed. Mm. So when you say natural language, do you mean like, because for a long time, when you put in a search term, you would say things like ah or the or into or something like that. All of those would be kind of called stop words, wouldn't they? And kind of discounted from the search. Are you saying, do you mean by natural language processing, do you mean that those words would all be considered as part of one search query kind of thing? Right, right. Instead of saying something like, you know, Mother's Day date, we're more likely to say something like, when is Mother's Day? Or Mother's Day 2018. We might have typed something like that. And so what we're seeing is that not only do we use that more natural, long form of a question in voice and mobile, but we're actually starting to type those more frequently too. Because we're just, we're just getting used to them working. Whereas before they didn't really, they didn't always work or they weren't any different than the short version. So yeah, I think we're just we're just adapting to that being how we phrase all searches, some of mm-hmm. us. <laughs> <laughs> and especially as we use, you know, there's there's voice in the sense of the voice appliance where it's talking back to me and there's voice in the sense of just your phone where you might ask the question with voice but still have that screen. You know, so I think they're getting used to that um we're getting used to just using longer queries and using natural language all the time. Mm. And for those people who are kind of thinking, who, who may not come from the search world and who are either developers on the you know, on the kind of digital assistant side of things or people who are focusing predominantly on these kind of smart speakers, if you were to search, and I think you kind of kind of answered this question, but I want to try and figure out what the difference is. If you were to search on let's say Google Home 
and you were to ask Google Home a question. I think some people might not think that we're performing a search there. They might just think that they're asking Google a question and Google's giving them the answer. But when you ask a question on Google Home, is that actually performing the same kind of search as you would perform if you were on a desktop and then serving the same search results back? Or is it doing something different? For the most part, it is. And so that uh, it depends. <laughs> so I can give you a few examples. But the good news is that, yes, because Google is using that same core knowledge and same core engine, the things we do to rank on desktop and the things we do to rank on mobile are actually helping us be voice answers as well. Um, and so there's a couple different varieties of this right now. So we have we have basically two kinds of answers in search. We have what we call knowledge cards, and I'm now I mean a very a specific kind of card, but knowledge boxes, um, which come from the knowledge graph. So the knowledge graph is Google's fact base. Uh, a lot of it comes from Wikidata. There are some other sources. This is coming straight from Google, and we can't really do much with it. Um, so these are informational searches. So I'll give you an example. If you ask a question like, when is Prince Harry's wedding? You're going to get my American view of what people care about in the UK. Um, <laughs> you, you get the, you know, if you do that on desktop, you'll get the date back, May 19th, 2018. Yeah. If you ask Google the same thing, I have a Google Home here, so I'm afraid to actually say the trigger words for uh, you know for the <laughs> Google Home. Uh, mm. But if you ask that same question, you will get that fact and some surrounding text back on Google Home. That doesn't really do you any good because that's kind of a closed information source. But there's another kind of answer that we call a featured snippet. And that's basically where Google takes the organic results, the things we try to rank for in organic search marketing and SEO, and picks one and puts it in an answer box. And so it's, it's an answer and a link to the site just like you would have with organic. So if you ask kind of a more complicated question like I, the one i was playing with was how much money does the queen have well that's kind of a there's not an easy answer for that right you know it depends who you talk to you get back a feature snippet uh and in this case i get back one for from independent.co.uk if you ask on voice you'll get that featured snippet so it's it's strange for a search marketing perspective because it's not an organic result in the typical sense that you link but Google Home will say something like, according to independent.co.uk, in 2011, Forbes estimated the British royal family's net worth, et cetera, et cetera. And so it'll take that same answer and convert it to a voice-friendly format and give the site attribution. And then what's interesting is that if you go to the app, the link is actually there in the app. And that's a little hidden, but I think what we're going to see is that you're going to ask that question on voice you're going to get that information back with the attribution and you'll be able to maybe send that result to your laptop or your desktop or your phone and just tell it, Oh, I want to learn more about that. And so there is going to be, we're going to actually travel back the other direction and there's going to be a, a marketing value to having your answers there. But the good news is that it's, it's coming from that same engine. So, you know, you don't have to go build a Google home app or an Alexa app. You, you can, if you want to, uh, but the same things that you're doing right now to answer questions in desktop and mobile search are giving you exposure and voice. And so, you know, in, in a sense, it's a shift to 
an answer-driven mentality instead of a purely keyword-driven mentality. But there are some ways we can get payoff on voice right now just by doing what we already do well. Because hmm. that, that would make sense in terms of the next step would be to send those results from that voice-only device to your phone or whatever if you wanted to learn more because that, that would kind of get over the thing that I've, that I've found recently which was i just read about this um so those kind of answer boxes that would give you the answer there and then within the search results page as opposed to making you go to the website to see it didn't like a load of websites see a massive drop in traffic after google sort of introduced that feature i'm sure i read that uh, so it depends. So we've seen it go both ways. Uh, it, when Google answers a definitive question, you know, like it used to be if you asked a question like, when is Mother's Day or when is Prince Harry's wedding, you'd get a bunch of websites. Now you just get that answer from the knowledge graph. That's a definitive answer and click-through rates on those SERPs. We, we're doing a new study now. Click-through rates drop off a lot on those searches. But when you ask a more open-ended question, you know, and something like how much money does the queen have, you know, there's still kind of an answer. So it depends how much you care. But, you know, uh, if you do something like I looked up if I'm planning a party for the royal wedding and I say, you know, recipes for party food or how do I plan for party food? Then you get you tend to get back these more interesting answers that are things like lists. And so what we see in those searches and what we see with feature snippets in general is that done right, they're kind of a teaser of the content. And if people are interested, they're going to follow up because they're not things that can be easily answered. Because anything that can be easily factually answered is going to be eventually sort of taken away by Google. You know, if it's how tall, how tall was Margaret Thatcher? You know, like that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. just a fact, right? <laughs> and that can just be... That can be, if that's your business model to answer questions like that, your time might be short in search. <laughs> uh, but for questions like, how do I paint my house? A few bullet points or a paragraph is only going to be kind of a teaser of the information. And so I think that's where we need to focus right now. And we're voice if voice isn't going to be adequate, you know, so we're going to get that information. We're going to go, oh, okay, that seems like, that seems authoritative or that seems like a decent answer, uh, send that to my phone or send that to my laptop. I want to look at the whole article. And so we're actually seeing decent click-through rates with feature snippets because it, it really is kind of suggesting that, hey, this is an authoritative answer. We're, we're putting this in this box and saying it's worth you looking at, but you're probably going to have more questions. You know, this isn't an easy answer or something that we can just throw out there. You know, it's not a date or a name or a metric that you're just done. Uh, it's something that's going to take some exploration. And so I don't think people should be afraid of those answers. Uh, I, I think we don't, we also don't have a choice. You know, if it's, if it's you in that box or your competitor in that box, uh, you hide, hiding your head and not being in that box isn't going to help you that much. <laughs> you <know? laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> and I think um, the, the other challenge from a search that, that card challenge in a sense is that if you're on desktop and you're ignoring that box, there's still organic results below it. And you're saying, Oh, you know, I'm number one or two or three. If you're on voice and you're ignoring that box, there's no answers after that, after that first one. So I, I think what's interesting about voice right now and the challenges that other organic results are there and you can say, Oh, well, I'm number two. I've still got something. If you're on voice, 
and you're not that answer, that's it. You know, that's the only answer people are going to get. And so that one card competition is much, much higher. And so I think that's why people do need to care and they can't really be too afraid of these boxes, with however they feel about them. And, you know, I think it's understandable to be cautious. Once we get to voice or once we get to mobile, that box at the top is just so much more valuable real estate than it is on desktop. And, you know, we're going to have to figure out what that means. And I do think once that flexibility is built in, you know, once things are moving between devices, we're going to be a little less afraid of it. But now it kind of feels like, oh, I don't get a link. You know, I, I don't know what to do. Well, you got something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's better than nothing. And <laughs> um, uh, it's it's happening whether we like it or not. That's that's where I'm usually at with Google, you know. Yeah. yeah we we can dislike it all we want. It's not going to change anything. <laughs> so is that how you think that Google is is prioritizing those different types of questions? Is that purely factual-based stuff comes from the knowledge graph and more open-ended questions come from potentially that number one kind of answer box on the featured snippet side? I, I think they have to. Yeah, I, I think they reached. This has happened in. If you look at directories in the early days of search, or if you look at uh, some of the search engines that tried to be different than Google or be fact-based, you can't curate information at that rate. Even Wikipedia, you know, they cannot answer every question. And so eventually, Google said, "You know what? We have this entire index of the web. We have to be able to generate answers from it." And so, you know, I, I think that, yes, the things they can answer fact-based, they will try to do that, and that's going to expand, but they're never going to be able to answer everything that way. And even if it's fact-based, in a sense, they can't keep up with the rate of change of the web. You know, there's new things happening every day. There's new facts every day. There's new information. Uh, you know, when they discovered the the one exoplanet that got a lot of news, Trappist, Trappist 7 or Trappist 9, I can't remember what it's called. You know, if you went the next day, there were there were featured snippets about that. They can't maintain curated data at that rate. So I think it's a this. I don't know if that's what they want to do. I think if Google could own all that data and answer all our questions with just what they own, they would be fine with that. But that's not possible. So yes, I think there's always going to be that split, uh, and and there will always be questions that you can't answer easily you know and, and over time some of those are going to be lists and some of those are going to be videos and you know it's going to depend on the kind of question you have uh, and we see that on voice you know if you if you ask something on voice i think you can ask it some things on youtube and then send the video to your tv via chromecast so now you've actually kind of done the journey in reverse because voice, google home is going to say well i can't show you a video and you probably don't want to just hear the video. <laughs> you know? So let's let's not do that. And on the flip side, if you go on mobile and you look up a recipe, and this is kind of this is now sort of a closed information source, Google is gonna say, Oh, well, maybe you should send that recipe to Google Home because you're not gonna have your hands while you're making this. So let's put it on Google Home. And actually if you I did that query, that recipes for party food. I get a featured snippet on desktop, but if I do that on Google Home, it has a recipe database and it says, hey, I found a recipe. Do you want to hear it? And so, you know, we're going to see some of that too, where voice is different than desktop sometimes. So it's, 
there's a challenge. We have to be aware. You know, we have to be trying these things out. I had one the other day where I, uh, I was doing some research. I ended up asking Google how to bake a ham. <laughs> and it said, it said, I have a recipe called some from, I have a recipe from recipes.com or someone called awesome baked ham. Would you like to make that? And I didn't answer and I was busy doing something and it, and it prompts you. And so it just kept prompting me, would you like to make awesome baked ham? <laughs> like every, every 30 seconds, would you like to make awesome baked ham? I'm like, all right, you know, let, settle down Google. Yeah. I'm not insulting your ham, but yeah. So it, it is funny. It, they are going to try and do some things differently with voice. Uh, but it, it's only going to be where there's enough interest and enough money and enough reason to do that. Mm. And speaking of different things being shown on kind of voice search results versus um, desktop-based results or mobile-based results, you you did a, a, a wicked article, which I'll link to in the show notes, called uh, Lessons from 1,000 Voice Searches on Google Home. Uh, that was from last year. This, uh, we, won't kind of, we won't have a chance to cover the whole thing, but there was a few things in there in terms of those differences that you mentioned in terms of, you know, you don't really want to hear the audio from a video on your smart speaker, you might want to send that to your phone. And one of the other interesting ones was all about um, results that return tables. I wonder whether you can kind of touch on that a little bit. So the example in the article is if you search for what generation am I, it will give you a, a table which will be baby boomer generation from this date to that date and generation X from this date to that date. How does that kind of work on voice and what kind of challenges do those kind of things present? Yeah, I think that's going to be interesting from a general UX uh, standpoint. Is So for the, the featured snippets, Right now, there are basically four kinds. There's kind of that regular paragraph answer that we're used to. There are bullet lists, which Google can create from basically any content, but where they decide a list is the best answer. There are tables where they essentially extract the table from the site and reformat it. So that example you gave is one. Uh, I think I saw one that was like Starbucks prices and it went to the site and it looked up the different drinks and put the drinks in one column and the prices in one column, you know, where it just kind of made sense to, pr to put that in a tabular format. And then there are featured videos, uh, which are kind of their own thing, but are also a featured snippet of a sort. So paragraphs, short paragraphs, and sometimes Google will just pick part of it, make perfect sense on voice. Short lists, makes sense. And you'll see that Google truncates a lot of the list. So it's just a couple words and dot, 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 and the ellipsis. That kind of works on voice and steps work on voice to a point if it doesn't get too long. But you can't really read a table. You know, they haven't really found a great way to do that. And that's not a Google problem. That's just a voice experience problem. And you can't really read a video. You can read a transcript. You can read a table, but it doesn't. Well, you lose the spatial aspect of it, you know. So it's it's really hard to tell unless you find a way to kind of translate. So right now, what we're seeing is if on desktop you get a table, sometimes and does a paragraph on voice, or does or so they're trying to figure it out. Like sometimes the formats they use for desktop just won't fit voice very well. So how do they simplify that? How do they 
become smarter. And they're, and this is Google, so they want to automate that. You know, they want to find a way that works most of the time for that kind of answer. And so right now, what you're seeing is that you don't get a lot of table-based answers because they don't really know what to do with them on mobile and voice. But over time, I think they're going to go, hey, you know what? There are some ways we can do this. And they're going to sort it out. So yeah, that'll be interesting. Or they're just going to give a different answer. And the funny thing is that answer actually comes from a different site. So it is a featured snippet, but it's just not one you're seeing on desktop. Mm. That's interesting. So let's kind of, you mentioned that the potential for that multimodality stuff in terms of searching for one thing on a, on a voice only platform and then getting, you know, sending those results to another device and, and the benefits in general of featuring in those featured snippets and having your answer returned on voice. Cause you do get the accreditation on Google home, as you mentioned. So, you know, here's what I found on recipes.com or whatever. Thinking about uh, brands and companies and content creators and people who are trying to kind of create and get a presence and establish a presence on this kind of rising new search kind of medium, um, what would your sort of advice be for for featuring as a search result on voice first platforms? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, I think in the SEO space, we're kind of used to think of thinking of keyword targeting, and we get a little. We're very metric. You know, it's all about like which which keywords are going to generate the most traffic for me. And I think the shift we have to make with voice and with natural language in general is to think more in terms of answering questions uh, and building, doing keyword research around it and building content around answering questions. Um, and that can, you know, we have to be careful because we could do that in a low quality way. You know, I think answering questions for our, our visitors has value. Uh, on Moz, we have the blog, of course, but we also have a permanent resource called the Learning Center. And so, you know, we have articles like what is a title tag that get a massive amount of traffic because they answer these basic questions that people want to know. Uh, and that those kind of permanent resources that are question and answer focused are very good fodder for featured snippets. Uh, and what's interesting is even though this is kind of a move to natural language, if you do, you don't have to type that question, what is a title tag, that same content could rank for just title tag or some of these more attractive traditional queries. You know, so we're not replacing one with the other, but I think it's just a different way to think about content in general. Uh, the other thing that I've pushed people towards, and again, I don't want to oversimplify, but I think it's just a good, it's a good thing to think about. In journalism, there's a method of writing, a structure of writing called the reverse pyramid. And the idea of the reverse pyramid is just get your premise out right at the beginning and then expand on it. You know, get their attention right away and give your argument. This is what I think, and then tell why. From a search perspective, what I would say is this, get your answer right out there. You know, if your page is, what is the title tag or, you know, whatever it is in your industry, even a how-to kind of thing, get sort of the basic structure of the answer there right away and then expand. And so with some of our pages, like what is a title tag? Well, we give that answer, but then we talk about how do I craft a title tag and how long can my title tag be and 
how do I put keywords in my title tag responsibly? And how do I do this for SEO? And we get into those sub questions on that same very rich page, but that basic answer is at the top. And then we let people dig deeper and deeper and deeper. I think people are afraid to do this because they're afraid to give the value away. But what I'm going to argue is this, you know, web, first of all, web visitors always have already have a very short attention span. I mean, we have a vanity that they're going to read our entire thing, no matter how long it is. And we know that we know that's not true. And so I think we need to cater to that. We need to give them what they want right away. But if we give them to that credibly, you know, if we give a question that really can't be easily answered, because what is a title tag is a complex question. You know what I mean? There's an easy answer, but then the answer I'm probably looking for is how do I write one? You know, or what do they mean for SEO? Or I have another question in mind. And so what we see is they look at that featured snippet and they say, you know what, this is, this seems good. This helps me. This seems like a good site, but I need to know more than this. And then when they hit your page, they see UX sometimes call it central. Same comfort of, ah, yes, they're not trying to trick me. And then they see that new information and that richer information. And so, you know, I think this is good for visitors. I think it's good for conversion. It might not mean that everyone comes to that page, but the people who come to that page will be qualified, interested people. And, you know, that's okay. That's a good thing. Uh, so I would really encourage people to think in terms of answers and think in terms of that reverse pyramid of, you know, get the answer out there and then explain it and then show your expertise and then break out these sub questions. Uh, the only thing I'll warn is that if you're in an industry where these questions can be very easily answered, you know, these time and date sites, they're, they're gone. You know, their revenue is gone. Uh, the, the sites that you would ask, when is Easter this year? That's answered now. You know, the sites that would tell you how old a celebrity is, they're gone. So, you know, I think this has to be rich, rich answers. They have to be answers that Google can't easily replace. You know, even lyrics, you know, if you're doing song lyrics, so Google has those now. So, you know, we, we have to be careful. So if your, if your answers are easy to come by, uh, I, I think your days are numbered. So you have to be looking for those deeper, richer kind of questions and answering those. And if you get that voice answer, then that's a bonus right now. Uh, but I think that's also just good for search. It's good for visitors. Google's going to reward that. Yeah, yeah. I'll just come. I'll just clarify that and make sure I've understood it properly. There was a slight little breakup um, on the internet connection side of things, which which I thought might happen, um, only briefly. But just to clarify, then you're saying to write in the reverse pyramid style, so that you, in terms of the content structure, you come out with the question on the answer to the question immediately in the first paragraph, and hope that that would rank in the featured snippet area, and that that wouldn't diminish any website traffic because more often than not people are going to see that and then either have further questions or be interested in learning more and then when they get there you would then underneath that opening title or open paragraph that answers the question you would then break that subject down a little bit more and give more background was that that was the gist of what we were saying wasn't it yeah exactly yes yes and i, I think it's you only have to be careful where 
I was doing some research and I typed in something like, uh, can I feed my hamster cheese? <laughs> well, that, that has an answer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how deep I'm going to dig. But if I'm asking a question like, how do I find the perfect job? You know, that, that's never going to be answered in a paragraph, but you could have a, a teaser or a, a, a core point, you know, uh, that you get right out there that gets them interested and pulls them into the deeper answer. So yeah, I think reverse pyramid is a great structure for that because it gets that out there. And writing that is an art, you know, writing that paragraph that doesn't give too much away, but is credible and plausible and draws people in and gives them good information. You know, there's no easy way. That's not easy. Uh, that's art as much as science. But, you know, I think, I think that kind of content is really valuable. Uh, and I'm not saying turn your whole site into an FAQ and churn out garbage, you know, churn out 5,000 questions, uh, which is how some people are doing it right now. But just think and think in terms of answering questions and, and valuable questions. We, you know, our learning center is a few dozen pages. You know, we're a big site, so that's not a ton, but we really try and focus on those really important, frequent SEO questions that people ask and updating those every couple of years and having good information there and good research. Uh, so people come back and we might put four or five. What's interesting is we might put four or five sub questions on mm. that same page and those get too. Oh, nice. So, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be, yeah, it doesn't have to be at the top of the page. I think that's a good structure that Google tends to reward if it's done well, but you can rank for those other questions in that long page too. So, you know, I, I don't want people to run off and make every page like a one paragraph answer. I think there's value to this rich, deep content. Uh, and one page can rank for five, six questions I've mm -hmm. seen in some cases. So, Cool. So is there, is there any other tips then that you would give uh, content creators or brands that are trying to establish uh, a presence on voice by trying to get into that feature snippet section? You've got shifting focus maybe from keywords towards answering specific questions and then in terms of how you answer that question using that inverted pyramid structure and then going from the high level answering the, the first question to get into more detail. Is there anything else um, that people should be looking at focusing on? Yeah, I'd say two things. Uh, first, I should note that that featured snippet does currently come from the first page of organic results. And the higher you are on the page, the more likely it is. So you still have to rank traditionally. You can't be number 75 and then get the featured snippet. You still have to overcome that challenge of authority and relevance and uh, ranking factors in general. So, you know, this is a core SEO task in many ways. Uh, before you just go rewriting all your content with no authority and no links and nobody cares about you. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not going to magically appear on voice. Uh, and the other side is just that awareness, you know, things like those recipe searches every once in a while, Google is going to just step in and we see this on desktop too. You know, if you're, you type in the title of a movie, now you get this rich answer box with the, the people in the movie and, you know, the information and the reviews, you know, if you type in, any sports team in the world, even some college and semi-pro, you type in the weather. Yeah, you know, we know there's certain niches Google has taken over. So you have to be aware of that on voice. There are certain things where Google is going to kind of step in and do their own thing. So don't invest, don't invest a whole lot in a certain kind of content and find out that they've replaced that on voice. So, you know, they, these, these devices, 
if you're an SEO team of any size, you know, these devices aren't expensive, uh, especially if you get the little ones. You know, to have an Echo Dot and a Google, what do they call the little Google one? I can't remember. The Google Home Mini. The Mini, yeah. So if a Home Mini and an Echo Dot, you know, that's like 60 bucks on our side of the pond for both for both of them. Uh, you know, just just do it. Be aware. Kind of know mm. what's going on. So we've touched a lot on Google. I wonder whether, and I don't know whether this is a question that, that you can answer or whether the, whether this is common knowledge or not, but does Alexa's search work in a similar way then? Do you think they've got a knowledge base behind the scenes and then they're searching the web as well? Because I know that sometimes Alexa will say, here's something I found from XYZ. So is that using a search engine behind the scenes as well as Google is? They do, but less. Um, and they switched, didn't they? They used to use Bing. And they, am I thinking wrong on that, that they switched over? They, I can't remember if they switched now, but they were using Bing for a while. But it's, they tend to focus on their own knowledge base more because they're really trying to drive, you know, they have just a different structure in the sense that Amazon's trying to drive you to their ecosystem to buy things. Google doesn't have the same exact kind of ecosystem, so they're still trying to figure that out. So Amazon has kind of built it around their own apps and their own knowledge base. And, you know, it, it's it's a mix. They do some things really well. Um, my kids really like Alexa because, you know, they're used to it. It answers a lot of basic questions. They can listen to music. So you have that tie into, like, the Amazon ecosystem. Uh, I listen to Audible on Alexa. But I think they're starting to trail in terms of that general question and answer capability. And all Alexa does is say, you know, I found something. I think they say now something like, I found some information for you on the web. And sometimes they give you a little bit of that. And sometimes they just send it to the Alexa app, which right now is, you know, I never, I never open the Alexa app and look to see what they sent me. I'm just like, oh, you didn't answer that. Yeah. And I move yeah. on <laughs> you know, and I move on with my life. So I think that's going to be a challenge for them They're They've done some of that, but they don't, they can't do that without partnering uh, with Google or Bing. And, you know, now obviously Cortana, Microsoft is running Cortana. Microsoft has always had challenges in the device space, but they're spending solid money and effort on Cortana as a digital assistant, as an engine. They're building it into Windows. You know, I can use Cortana on my desktop. I don't. I'm not really used to it. Uh, but it, they're making it a lot easier. Like Cortana is just kind of integrated in Windows 10 now. Uh, so, you know, I think the hard part for Amazon is they don't have that they don't have a search engine. So are they going to move towards their own knowledge base more and more, or are they going to have to rent that capability from someone else? Um, and Apple's in the same boat. I think Siri has really fallen behind, honestly. And I, I switched. I used to be an iPhone user for years. Uh, but Siri, Siri kind of fell behind, and they don't have that same knowledge base that uh, Microsoft and Google do. So I'm not... Yeah, I'm not sure what the future holds there. So Apple, Siri and Alexa are much more dependent on their own knowledge base. And so for marketers, there's less opportunity. You know, Amazon apps, Alexa apps, obviously, you can build. Uh, but from a search marketing aspect, there's less opportunity yeah. on those devices. Yeah, 100%. I think 
I've heard loads of people say they've moved from an Apple phone to uh, to funnily enough the phone that you're using the Google Pixel or the Pixel 2 There's, that's been a really lots of people I've spoke to have been into this space have got so sick and tired of Siri that they've moved phones because of it um so yeah, I think I definitely agree with that. I, I use Siri here and there. Um, I use it for you know uh, reminders and stuff like that, and I do still persevere with it, only because I only upgraded my phone last September, and I don't really fancy getting rid of it after kind of like eight months of using it or whatever. Um, so I do persevere with it, but yeah, it is not fantastic. Um, that answer to the last question, I've done a quick search there, and it, it turns out if there's a post on the next web from 2015 saying that Amazon Echo runs Bing, and then there's another post uh, on Reddit. I don't know how reliable that's going to be from January 2018. And apparently, uh, according to Reddit, it still uses Bing unless something's changed um, recently. That might explain some things. Yeah, I heard an announcement and then it didn't seem like anything changed. So I have a feeling that announcement was either was premature. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure. But they don't really say. They used to actually say where the information came from. And now it says something like, so I ran a search on the web or according to some information I found on the web uh, and then just gives you the information. And then again, you can open the app and I think you get a Bing search in the actual app, but they're trying not, they don't want to advertise that <laughs> this isn't, this isn't us, yeah. but they don't, yeah, they don't do it. They don't do it very well yet. Uh, I think Cortana eventually will be more like Google in the sense that, you know, that will tap Bing's, Bing's index and Bing search results uh, and operate in a similar way because they at least have that core capability. Uh, but I think it'll be challenging for uh, Alexa and Siri. Uh, I think Alexa, I think Amazon has a much more direct path to the money than Google and Microsoft do. So they're going to be okay for a while. Uh, I think actually Apple will have the most challenges, but from a, from a pure marketing perspective, you're, your easiest voice answers to compete for right now are, are on Google. Uh, and if you're going to get into the other ones, you're probably going to have to build apps. And obviously that's going to take more planning and more budget and some more, some more thought about the trade-offs. It might, it's worth doing sometimes, but you're going to have to think more about the trade-offs. I think the advantage of Google right now is that the things you already do well as a search marketer will benefit you on Google Home. Mm. And on and on Google Assistant on the phone as well. Yeah, I suppose then that it's the so search marketers have got a real upper hand, haven't they, in terms of establishing a presence for their clients on on Google. I think that the, the challenge will be for the people who are, you know, ears have been pricked by this kind of new form of technology and trying to get then established on on the the native search part of these voice first kind of devices are going to have a lot. A lot bigger challenge ahead, I think. Well, I think it's an yeah. easier argument in the sense of, you know, you, you can go to your client or your boss and bring your Google Home or bring Google Assistant and say, oh, look, we rank for voice. And they're going to go, oh, that's cool. How do, we, how do we get more of that? You know, and then you can say, well, we need to restructure our content a little bit. I'd like to try some things. I'm going to need a little time. I'm going to need a little budget. That's a much easier argument than, oh, Alexa is really taking off. We need to build an app and I'm going to need $15,000 and an engineer. Uh, you know, that's a really hard fight to win right now. So I think what's nice with Google home with that ecosystem is you can kind of show some success without much time or budget, and then use that to get more buy-in. 
uh, it's going to it's going to be a tougher battle on some of the other devices. Yeah, wicked. Well, I think that summarizes it absolutely perfectly. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Doctor Pete. Where can people find out a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about Moz? Uh, we are at moz.com, moz.com, and the Moz blog is a great place to start. And then I am usually on Twitter. I'm just dr underscore Pete on Twitter. Fantastic. Wicked. Well, thank you so much for joining us there. That was an absolutely immense discussion, that. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. I think that we've covered a hell of a lot of ground we've never covered before on that. So thank you so much for all of your input, Pete. That was really appreciated. Thanks. It's great, great to be here. Good to talk to you. Wow. What an amazing conversation that was. God, that guy, man, he's just the vision and the knowledge. Well, I would, that is probably one of the people who I would invite to dinner out of my four people to invite to dinner. and to. We didn't share dinner uh, just then, but uh, that was the only thing missing from that conversation was a pint of beer and uh, a steak. <laughs> so that was unbelievable, yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Pete, for joining us. Wow, that that guy's knowledge of Google and how the whole thing hangs together and, and you know how Google Home processes search results, how the whole of Google's turning into more of a device agnostic organization, which we've <clears throat> we've actually touched on in other podcasts. We think about the one, uh, I think it was number five or so with Matt Hartman from Betaworks. He was suggesting that more and more companies um, are turning to that kind of model where they've got a centralised kind of brain as he described it and they then just feed stuff out to the various devices and various modalities um, based on the user's requirements and that seems to be, from what Pete was saying the way that Google are moving as well loads of insights in there for search marketers is the phrase that Pete was using quite often and that's obviously still the case but there'll be loads of people I think listening to this who are wondering how Google Home and Google Assistant work in terms of being able to answer the questions that you have and I think that he explained that perfectly so there you go to, to rank and to get your brand's question answered via voice on Google Assistant or Google Home you need to invest in more traditional search engine optimization and then tweak in the way that you create and publish content and design content in a way that becomes more focused on answering your users' questions. Um, absolutely unbelievable episode that. Thank you so much, Pete, for joining us. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, see you later. <laughs>